You're listening to Missing Panther. And then he started walking, and immediately I realised through what I was looking at exactly what it was. It was a panther. We were embarking on a trail run in the Otwes, and when I turned my head, I saw what I can only describe like a big black cat hunting through the forest. We're going down this road. The puma just came from my left. I said, look, look at that. Up with Anna on Gippsland's Hit. This is Neil Mitchell. Ah, uh, today it's Big Cats. ABC Radio Victoria. ABC Mix Brecky, Panda and Vic with you. And we have a man on the phone who is producing one of the most listened to podcasts out there at the minute called Missing Panther. Missing Panther. Missing Panther. Missing Panther. Podcast called Missing Panther. And his next episode is Big Cats in Victoria. Ben Bede, good morning. Good morning, Ben. And he joins us this morning. How are we, Ben? When the research takes me to the state of Victoria, it seems to gather attention quite fast. Whether a sceptic or believer, it's obvious there's a deeply embedded interest in the story of big cats here. So far, I've interviewed hundreds of people from all over Australia who claim to have seen some form of big cat. Each interview, I first like to ask the very basic questions. Did you see the whole animal or just part of it? How long did you have it in your line of sight? Could it have been the back end of a wallaby or perhaps just a large feral cat? These questions aren't designed to insult anyone's intelligence, more so just to eliminate any chance of a misidentification. For some, it can be a little irritating or even confronting, but I still see it as a necessary line of questioning to get as close to the truth as I can. But when local media caught on that I was researching big cat sightings around Victoria, it then became my turn to take the hot seat. But Ben, for, but for, for sceptics, you would argue, yeah. if there are so many of these things, why don't we yeah. why don't we either have the tranquilised body of one of them or at least mm. a very good photograph or video of one of them? What's the best evidence you've discovered throughout the Missing Panther podcast? But what's the most compelling evidence you have other than anecdotal? The thing that always seems to be missing from these conversations is the photograph or the video indicating that this is a, a panther, not just a very large feral cat. How come we're not seeing concrete evidence, whether it's footprints, whether it's film? Along with sort of, I guess, like witness accounts, are you guys going to be speaking to, to experts and things like that? Why do you think it is that, that the panther story has captured the imagination of communities right around Australia? The lion has been feral for some years and they've built up their size, much larger than your average domestic moggy, but they're feral cats that have grown. What about that as a theory? That is a theory that I've, I've heard. But, I mean, if they are just feral cats, I mean, why can't we why can't we get a specimen as well? Yeah, you know, true. And you've recently spoken to some Gippy locals about it. What did they tell you about their sighting? Why are you interested in the Otways panthers? How come we're not seeing concrete Why don't evidence? we either have the tranquilised body of one of them? Whether it's film. What's the best evidence you've discovered? Well, do you believe in them or not? 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 Ben Bede, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you, mate? I'm okay. Well, do you believe in them or not? Yeah, I do, mate. Absolutely. Why? 
Uh, heard you on Neil Mitchell a couple of days ago. He uh, went a little bit hard at some of your theories, Ben. Look, you know, those questions from Neil, they uh, they should be asked, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Just because I choose to believe, you know, there are big cats roaming out there, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean I'm not open to, you know, quality research or, or potentially other theories. Bit of stigma, though, Ben. Have you copped any from, from the podcast? People thinking you're a bit of a weirdo? <laughs> If a wildlife biologist who's worked all their life with big cats says to me, Ben, I saw a panther clear as day, what does that tell you? Does, is he lying to me? Is he extremely poor at his job? You know, I sort of choose to believe him. I don't think there's any benefit to make up these kind of stories. And look, just because I choose to believe them and think that they truly believe what they're saying, I mean, sure, if you think that makes me crazy, get laugh away, but oh, I couldn't care less, mate. I've had a couple of text messages from friends all saying, what is this fool on? A lot of people believe, a lot of people don't, Vic. Well, I don't think that Ben's a fool. A lot of people uh, just don't like people who believe in the white panther. I'm very, very sceptical about it. I wear uh, very large feral cats. That's as close as I'll get. Another texter writes, I think the Venn diagram puts those people who have seen big cats in the Victorian Highlands in the same overlap circle as those having beer for breakfast. His podcast is all about presenting other people. He's not pushing his own agenda, which is what I like about it. Um, he lets people tell the story. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But I do agree that everyone will always continually say, where is the hard evidence? After a few hours of being curled up on the floor under a cold shower, thumb in mouth and lights off, I had to pull myself together and get back on the job. Reports of big cats were coming in fast from almost every corner of Victoria. I'm always grateful to those who are willing to share their story with me. There really is no incentive for coming forward as a witness of something unusual like a big cat. You don't get put up on a pedestal and there's no cash prize. If anything, it's more of a risk becoming the laughing stock at the local bar or the target of a little sneering down the main street, which can be especially hard in small country towns. A lot of people contact me confidentially to share with me something that they saw that resembles a black panther. And a select few of these people take the next step of sharing their story for the podcast. Without them, it'd just be an hour or so of me chatting away with some soothing background sounds. So I thought this would be a great time to thank everyone for sharing their story, especially to those willing to go on record, so we don't have to waste too much time hearing me waffle on. To get this episode kickstarted, we'll be hearing from a Cobden local, Barry McGrath. Barry had an interesting encounter while fishing in southern Victoria. Barry's story also brings us to the Otways, which continually pops up in the media spotlight when it comes to big cat sightings or unusual stock loss. Earlier in the year, I was contacted by the McGrath family, who informed me that Barry had unfortunately since passed on. So, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Barry and the McGrath family. They told me that Barry got a real kick out of sharing his story one last time and now I'm honoured to be able to say Barry's story and memory will always live on inside this episode. Big Cats of Victoria. Now we're ready to go, mate. Yeah, well, I'll start now. Yeah, well, John told me you were a bit interested and would I ever talk to you? And I said, yeah, I'll ever talk to you. I can only tell you what we've seen and... Me and my friend, we used to go fishing once a week and we'd go to Peterborough or mainly Sherbrooke down where the footy ground is at at Princetown, right? So uh, this morning we're going in the track, just a dirt track where we parked the cars and we used to walk around the river until we come to the beach to fish on the beach. We were going in this morning and it was about a Wednesday after Easter. At Easter time, 
a lot of people get onto the football ground there at uh, Princeton and they camp there. So this morning, we're going in fairly early. I'm going back about six years ago. Yeah, it wasn't yesterday. We were going in there quite steady in the car to park and uh, when we looked up ahead of us was this black big animal. And my mate said, oh, what's that? And I said, well, it's not a fox and it's not a dog. Yeah, I said, I think it's a panther, black panther. And anyhow, he turned around and had a look at us. He wasn't very far ahead of us. He was walking up the side of the road and we thought he'd just come back from the football ground after all the campers had been there. He'd probably been down looking for a meal, a bit of a feed. So anyhow, he was walking up the side of the track and he spots us and he turned round and he was certainly not a dog because he didn't have a pointy snout. He had a round head on him, you know, and a jaw, yeah, different to a dog. And he had he had this long tail, well, I reckon it was close to a metre in length, and it was bent down and curled up at the end, you know, above the ground. He wouldn't have been as big as an Alsatian dog, but uh, he was black in colour. He looked the real thing to me. He had a good look at us. And then he jumped into the bushes and took off, of course. Anyhow, he took off. We got a hell of a good look at him. And my mate, mate said, there's not much good telling anyone about this because they won't believe us. And I said, yeah, well, that's probably true, but one or two might. So that, that wasn't the end of the story. Now, another day I was down there on my own and I'd been fishing and I'd come back around the river from the beach, got in the car to come home. And I'm driving out the track. This is all at Princeton. And uh, I spot another one. He was, uh, he looked a lot younger and all his hair was seen to be standing up. You know how the young ones spike their hair and have it all standing up on the head? Well, this bloke, whether he was sick or not, I don't know. And then he jumped, he jumped into the, into the scrub too. And that was the last I seen of him. It wasn't the same one. No, he was the real article. There's been talk of them as far around as Torquay. That's the stories I've heard. They've been sighted right around there in the bush. They live pretty well down there, got plenty of kangaroos and rabbits. That's the end of the story. A lot of people don't believe it. It's uh, pretty hard for some people to believe these things because they don't want to believe them. But uh, I can believe it because I've seen it. Yeah, nothing's going to change my mind because I know what I've seen. Okay, mate, thanks very much. Okay, my boy. Radio, too late. A major search and rescue operation is underway in Victoria's high country. Police are ramping up their search for two people missing for 10 days. Another lone hiker has gone missing in rugged bushland, this time in the Otway Ranges. A search has resumed today in Victoria's Alpine region for an experienced hiker. Police thoroughly scoured the area from the ground and the air. Friends and family of the couple are very concerned. Police hold serious concerns for her safety. 
Hundreds of hikers in Victoria's high country have been rescued over the years thanks to the brave men and women from Victoria's police air wing. For years, Matt hung out the door of a chopper, scanning some of the most isolated and inaccessible bushland for lost and injured hikers. Hovering above these remote areas gave Matt a unique vantage point to wildlife that perhaps doesn't want to be found. It was in 1996. I was a what they call an air observer uh, in the Victoria Police Air Wing. Police aircraft was made up of three crew, so you had a pilot and you had two observers. One was the mission commander, but he basically ran the, the flight. And then you had a, a second observer uh, in the back who was, I guess, the eyes and ears of uh, the crew. But also, uh, if a rescue was involved, the senior observer on the shift would be the winch operator and the second observer would be the rescue crew person. So they would go down the wire and affect any um, recovery uh, if required. On this particular day, we were tasked down to the Apollo Bay uh, area in Victoria for a missing 23-year-old female hiker. So the police horses were down there and also back in, they were called the special solo, so they had some police on motocross. There was no vehicle access tracks and stuff like that, especially in the area that she was. So we've been sent down there, and I think we've been given, a, as you do, you get, you get given usually the, the hardest country to search where no one can get to. The vast majority of the training built around map reading and topography and scale and, and those type of things. So, Yes, you flew around the helicopter, but you had to get that helicopter on the ground as well. So, and that would, you know, and because we, we also operated in an air ambulance function, that meant landing in the middle of a road, a country road, or up in the high country. So, depth of scale was, was vital that we call it a confined area work. So, you would fly over a, a landing site and you would have to make a determination can we get ourselves in there? And that was often done at anywhere between 200 and 100 feet in the air. You became very intuitive with that skill. So you get this really good skill set of judging distance and obstacles and height. Usually, you know, on long searches, you'll, you'll spend the whole flight sitting on the um, edge of the door um, with your feet on the, on the skid and just basically scanning. We're probably only about 150 to 200 feet, maybe, at this point, because we're tracking along the highest point of the spur. And from a helicopter point of view, we're at a slow walking pace. So we're basically trying to cover the ground as slowly as possible. If you go too fast and the person's trying to find a clearing in the in the undergrowth to get out of the wave, you're going to be past them before they get a chance to do that. On this afternoon, we're coming down the spur line. We're just approaching a small opening. And, it w and the opening wouldn't have been more than... 20 metres by 20 metres, roughly, of just a little bit of open ground. And I was looking down from the left-hand side of this clearing, this animal just dumped out into the clearing, probably in the clearing by a couple of metres, and just propped. Its head was down flat. It had two big front legs, they were out in front. Its ass was squashed to the ground with a big, long black tail. And it was sort of, its head was moving back and forwards and it was really like it had come out of the clearing and then got, a, got startled. It realised there was a, a big noise above it and didn't actually quite, didn't know what it, what it was and actually where it was at the time. So it propped for a good three to five seconds and I'm just looking at this thing and then it stood up and taken basically two bounds and it was into the other side of the clearing on the right hand side. So it was a big cat. And I remember saying to the crew, I said, you know, for me, I've just seen this big cat. 
we didn't turn back. They just we just kept on moving down with it. And uh, afterwards, I would be landing or refueling. I said, I, I just saw a big cat. I, I reckon I've seen one of those pandas or panthers or whatever they were. We caught them at the time. And they said, oh, well, look, it's not unusual because they've been seen around a lot. But that was the first encounter that I ever had been and, and have ever had been. But I've seen enough animals in the wild and I've seen enough animals in that job flying around, um, whether it's cattle moving through, kangaroos, wallabies, pigs, donkeys. You, you know, you name it, I've seen it moving through the bush. And this thing was definitely a panther. You know, it does take a couple of seconds to, to, for it to compute because what you're looking at, it catch, it does catch you. You don't see a panther uh, in the wild every day. It's not something that we see in Australia. And, and when you do analyse it, you go, really? Wow. You know, as it left, it would have been a good six foot. And it was, you know, black as pitch as well. So once I sort of got, got my thoughts together, I have no doubt that what I saw was a, was a big cat. I was never a doubter and I was never a, uh, a believer until I had my experience, but I had no reason to doubt that it wasn't, there wasn't substance to it. But after that, I had no doubt at all. Tim took a trip down to the Otways from the Yarra Valley, only to find out that perhaps the mystery of big cats might be true after all. About 12, 13 years ago it would have been, we used to have a house down at Apollo Bay and we were just driving home through the hills above Skeens Creek. Uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning, it was crystal clear day, it was a beautiful day. My wife and myself in the front and the kids in the back. Coming up this straight stretch of road and it wouldn't have been any more than 100 metres, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 metres ahead of us. And a big um, black cat came out from the right side, there was no other cars around. It was right next to one of the um, white posts on the side of the road, one of the side marker posts. Well, like when we first saw it on the side of the road, it had one bound and then another bound and it was off to the other side of the road. So it was obviously a big cat to be able to do that. It was really easy to tell how big it was because it was right next to that white post. Its back was just below the reflector. It was basically the whole of the reflector on the, on the post. It was just such a big, um, solid, jaw and head on it. I mean, it wasn't far away and you can see exactly what it looked like. It didn't look like any cat, any like domestic or feral cat, that's for sure. And my wife and I just looked at each other, just dumbfounded. I've, I've seen um, on a job that we were doing a few years back, there was a feral cat there that we um, we shot it and um, and that was a fully grown, a big feral cat. It, it wouldn't have been a third of the size. I've never thought that, it's, that it wasn't possible. I mean, like I said, it was, it was that close. I went to Sri Lanka last year looking for leopards. And they went on a couple of treks and they were looking for them. And I mean, you, you, can, you see them from maybe 200 metres away and you can tell that they're huge. This thing was, you know, 50 to 100 metres away from me and the wife. And we both saw the same thing. And we both just looked at each other and went, wow, <laughs> you know what that was. Not long before completing this episode, Leon called in after apparently seeing something in the Otways just on the weekend. This is Saturday, just gone. Yeah, this is just, this is a few days old. I was visiting my grandparents. My family's been in the Otways area. They moved there in 1855 initially. So my family's always, always lived out there. It was Saturday afternoon. We'd basically done everything we needed to get done on, 
on the farm. My, my grandparents have a farm there and then decided we'll, we'll go for a nice drive on the old ocean road. So we jumped in um, in the old ute and away we went. And on the old ocean road, we saw a few a few animals here and there. Um, I think we may have seen an echidna on the way down. I remember that was the day before, but then we'd seen, saw a couple of wallabies. So there was a bit of movement out in the bat. It was a warmish day, you know, it would have been 25 degrees. It was a bit humid. So we're continuing along and, you know, by now it's sort of 3.30, 4 o'clock, pretty much halfway up the Barapa. Yeah, we're just driving along and then all of a sudden this large cat comes up. The way we're heading, the river was on our right. So it looked like it had come up from the river. It wasn't running, but it was moving quickly. The body was quite long, but it was big. Like it was big, but it didn't look like a mature cat. And it had a long tail on it, a very thick tail. Like it was just blatantly obvious that it was a cat. I've got a German Shepherd and uh, it was, I'd say it was longer than my dog. Yeah, there's no way you'd get a feral cat this big. And it was so black. It's rare to see, you know, like my, my German Shepherd's black, but this just seemed blacker than that. I don't know, it was very, very, very dark. But I was driving very slow because it's, it's an old, it's like a, a 2000 model Holden Rodeo U. So it's pretty rough on the suspension and that road's pretty rough. So because of that, I was going at a snail's pace, which is possibly why I saw it. But I think based on the time of day and the temperature, um, it just makes a lot of sense that it was going down for a drink at around that time. It's the hottest part of the day. It was really fascinating. Yeah, I just wish I got my phone out. <laughs> They're definitely out there. Went and told my nan about it and she said she's been hearing rumours about that for a very long time, that they're around. My nan told me they've, they've heard stories about the farmers losing cattle. Something's getting them. So that, that's where they obviously get their feed from. Um, I can definitely see why people are sceptical. But the other thing is, yeah, based on how fast it moved, I can, it doesn't surprise me that it's hard to get good footage of, of these. It's just definitely true. They're definitely there. When Philip put on his running shoes one morning, the last thing on his mind was running for his life. So the day was last year in October. Me and my friends, we got a small uh, running group and we were embarking on a trail run in the Otways behind Aries Inlet. We did a 11 kilometer loop. It's a relatively remote single track and I'm the least fit of the three of us. So I'm always trailing behind. And I didn't know the track I was, I was running and it was about 11 in the morning and really dense, dense bush, like single track. And I was running along, I was a bit out of breath and, and something caught my attention out of the corner of, the, of my eye. And when I turned my head, I saw what I can only describe like a big black cat hunting through the forest. It was pitch black. If, if size-wise, um, I would have to explain it like a large, big, fat Labrador, but it wasn't, it wasn't fat. It was lean, it was muscular. It completely, absolutely startled me because I, I couldn't... My brain was like, what was that? And what's it doing here? That doesn't belong here. If, if feral cats get the size of a large, large Labrador slash maybe German Shepherd in muscularity and in size, then that animal that I looked at must have been just, just guessing between anywhere around the 30, 40 kilo mark. Just, just guessing by the size, the animal was about 10, 15 meters away. It was, it was really strange experience at the time because I immediately, my brain immediately went, what was that? What was that and what's it doing here? And I, when I saw the animal leave, my first concern was, what was that? Where does the trail go? Is there other people? 
And then I was concerned about the safety of my friend's dog who was running off lead with us. But I certainly felt vulnerable and I, uh, yeah, I had this what just happened moment. It was strange, it was a strange experience. I've never, never seen anything like that before. It took me, it took me 20 minutes to, to catch up with them. Angus said, my mate said to me, what happened? Because apparently I was completely white in my face. And the first thing I said to him, where's your dog? Because he had a, he has a Kelpie and I just wanted to make sure the dog is safe. Then when I said to Angus, I said, I, I don't know what I saw. It looked to me like, like a panther. He said, well, you must have seen the odd panther. Since this day, we haven't been out there again. So my, my encounter was very brief, but certainly intense and, and out of the ordinary. And I, I tell people, I've, I've told people about it and, and they go, I don't believe it. So I'm not blaming you. I wouldn't believe it either. It couldn't have been anything else. I told somebody about it who lives in the Otwise and he said, oh, Simon Townsend, he, he's, he's researching big cats. And then I had a look in his website and, and looked at what he does. And then I thought it might be interesting for him to reach out for research. And he did confirm that this area historically had a few sightings. I couldn't do an episode on big cats in Victoria, especially when I'm in the Otways region, without speaking to two men who for decades now have been constantly in the field, exploring the most remote areas and analysing unusual stock hills and doing everything within their means to investigate these reports. For decades now, John Turner and Simon Townsend have been actively pursuing the mystery big cat phenomenon right across Victoria. Until now, I hadn't actually spoken to John, so I thought I'd ask him how this all began for him. In the 70s, I'd come back from service in Vietnam and uh, my father and I were spotlighting for foxes up in the northeast east of Victoria where I used to live. And we saw, I didn't know what it was, at about 60 metres away in the paddock. When we were spotlighting, there was this big black animal that had uh, obviously killed a sheep and it was sitting down eating the sheep. And I had the spotlight on it and I watched it through my 22, you know, which is a light calibre rifle and didn't want to shoot it because this thing was just enormous. I didn't know what it was and um, didn't think about it for a while and then about 10 or 12 years ago I lived up near Beechworth. I was out going fishing one morning and there was this enormous big cat sitting on top of a, of a log pile that had been pushed up and he was watching kangaroos facing the other way and he didn't see me. I, I just walked right up to him probably within eight or ten meters from him and that, yeah, and I stood and watched, and then I shouted at him, and he turned, looked at me, bounded off the top of the log pile and through the can through the mullock of kangaroos, so I could judge how big this animal was. Simon Townsend has been the face of big cat phenomenon in Victoria for years, and has been a bit of a go-to guy for the media when new sightings have been reported. Simon Townsend has been hunting big cats for 30 years. Last few years. We've had dozens of stock kill reports that we've investigated. Official evidence of Victoria's big cat is scarce. Stories like Simon Townsend's sightings in the 1970s have become folklore. I'm currently uh, saving material that could be used for DNA analysis, particularly the saliva of these potential predators, with the analysis actually producing for us a definitive result of what we're actually dealing with. There's been rumours for many years of a thing called the, the, the Great Otway's Puma. And interestingly, the Ford Motor Company has recently released a new car it's called the Ford Puma, and Ford is going to put some money into setting up cameras and things around the bush in the Otways to try and see if this potentially mythical cat is actually real. Our next guest is a researcher at Big Cats Victoria, Simon Townsend. Good evening. Now the car company Ford have decided to support the search for big cats in Victoria 
by boosting Simon and John's efforts with some funding to purchase some new and improved equipment. I asked Simon and John how they were going to spend the money and what the plan of attack was. They were bringing out a new motor vehicle for distribution in Australia. They were wanting to promote this particular vehicle and I did a few sums and thought about the gear that we do need. Some new trail cameras, game cameras, call them what you like, and night vision gear, that, and, uh, and possibly a thermal Im imaging unit. It helps put us back in the game. On the um, pastoral country that borders the Otways, especially to the north side, we've had foals killed and eaten out overnight. We've had sheep killed eaten, found one day, and they've disappeared the next, they've been carried away. That really makes you stop and think. It keeps me fired up. It's an eye-opener when it happens. If you've got one piece of what I'd like to think of, uh, John and I refer to it as hot ground when we're talking together, but to other people say, so, you know, a place where uh, several occurrences have, have happened, that's what is very valuable. You just hunt the one place, you think about the one place, you know it intimately, well, I've got to be careful because the last thing I want is to have uh, cowboys showing up and actually disturbing animals, spoiling the sign, all that sort of stuff. That's primary, you know. And that area was the closest uh, to John and I. A very strong history. It, it's certainly worth persevering with. There's no two ways about it. Stuff happens there. You know, beasties are seen, beasties are known. And um, that's, that's a real deal. We have a couple of properties that we are in touch with and they're in touch with us and they let us know when they've lost animals in bizarre circumstances. But the trouble is, one, we've got to be there, but the other side of it is to make sure they don't touch the carcasses. They must not touch them, they mustn't let their dog near them. Uh, the Otways region is very close to where we are. So it's you know, within 30 kilometres or so of Geelong, we're in red hot big cat country where we get sightings maybe two, three, every week, every week, sometimes half a dozen. We have farmers in these so-called hot areas that lose one or two sheep and calves every week, every week, you know, spread over a big area. So consistent and we're very fortunate that this is on our doorstep. It's, it's nearly always the same pattern, a kill to the throat, uh, roll it over and just hold it by the throat till it suffocates. When the animal is killed, they will open it up, take the intestines out very precisely, like you would do it with a knife, and then the inside of the, of the carcass gets eaten out, cleaned out. Most times when we find a carcass that's been eaten like this, it looks like somebody's wiped the inside of the, um, of the body out with a sponge. There is no blood left, nothing. It's, it's interesting because we'll go and put cameras on a, on a fresh kill Nothing will happen to it while well, we've got cameras on it, but the uh, carcass will start to rot away and we'll go and move the cameras somewhere else and come back three days later and the carcass is gone. I don't know what else would take a rotting carcass the size of a, a full-grown kangaroo or a full-grown sheep. There's half a dozen properties that border onto the Otway's forest where, uh, where we're going to concentrate. The new strategy that we're taking, we will put a camera close up to a carcass, maybe you know, three or four metres away from a carcass, quite obvious, on a tree like what we've always had. The new way that we're going to do it is input cameras 10 or 12 or 15 metres away on the camera, including the carcass in the background, and see if we can trick these animals because they seem to be able to sense a camera. Even though they're supposed to be silent and infrared cameras, we think it's somehow sensing something in the cameras. 
I asked John what the plan was if they were ever able to get their specimen. Melbourne Zoo would like us to bring a carcass of the cat for identification. They don't care whether it's been run over on the road or whether a, a farmer or a hunter has shot one, but, uh, but they don't want the thing just disappeared and scun and hung on somebody's wall as a trophy. We have to have a specimen so we can do proper DNA analysis of the animal um, and find out where it came from. Recently I had uh, a hunter that had thermal imaging scope. Well, he was shooting foxes and he was very successful. He saw the cat 200 metres away and as soon as he turned the thermal imaging on, the cat looked at him now from 200 metres away. All of this is on the same property, a couple of thousand acres on the edge of the Otways. There's been a cat living there for years. It's obviously breeding because they don't live that long, but there's certainly a hot, hot spot where we go. Live before I die. <laughs> like to get this out of the way. John was kind enough to put me in touch with the hunter he mentioned saw something through his night vision scope on a property that both Simon and John have labelled as hot ground. Bruce is highly regarded by local farmers as someone who's extremely efficient at what he does and could easily find his way around John and Simon's hot ground with his eyes closed. Bruce explains a little more about what he does and tells me of the night he and his hunting partner Peter were left scratching their heads. Yeah, look, it's a service we'll provide. We enjoy doing what we're doing and controlling pests is obviously um, certainly a, a big part of a, a farmer's job. We take on that task for him and we provide our service free of charge because it allows us to be able to hunt on a property and uh, it's a privilege, not a right, to be able to um, go out and um, hunt on somebody's property. So we, we scratch each other's back, really. We, uh, we help take care of his problems and um, he allows us uh, the freedom of the property and uh, we treat that property as we would treat our own property so we, uh, you know, so we work really well together. Look, I've been uh, hunting and fishing since I was uh, 10 years old and uh, the technology over the years has just vastly, vastly improved. Now we're on to the, uh, the newer technologies of uh, hunting in the night without lights and in the dark and it, uh, it's an amazing experience. Thermal can be very expensive. Uh, top range stuff but in for a penny in for a pound now that particular scope of mine will record i can take pictures it's seeing in the dark basically it's okay having having the scope but we use thermal spotters also top of the range spotter this particular type of stuff you can you can pick up a man a mile away it's amazing technology the actual quality of the image is quite amazing everything that delivers any kind of heat signature we pick up. I can be walking along and I can pick mice up, you know, 50, 80 metres in front of me in the grass. Birds, you see birds flying along when you're, when you're panning around and looking, you, you'll see a, a bird fly past or possums in trees, rats, gazillions of rabbits, foxes, the way they move, their silhouette when they're a long way away. You know, when you're getting out five, 600 metres, you pick them up straight away, oh, fox just the way they move. And then as they start to come within sort of 250 uh, metres away, full identification, no problems at all. I mean, you can pick them up and identify them out past 400 metres. But you know, you know you're specifically on, you're seeing tail, ears, snout, the whole body, the way they move, the, the structure of the animal. Um, they're inquisitive, they're, they're sort of sniffing the air. You can see all this happening through the scope. Uh, I introduced myself to it took me around the property, 
With his fox problems, he'd heard that uh, we're very efficient at what we do. I don't use vehicles, I do it all on foot. We do it in the night, we're very quiet. The only thing you're going to hear is the odd uh, gun going off. So the fox problem was his main concern. Now, he did make aware to us that there was this animal. He'd been sighting sightings of this animal himself, a large black panther. Uh, panthers, as you know, that kind of word that could be something along the lines of a jaguar or some kind of black leopard. Uh, to be honest, Benny, I'm a believer. A seeing is believing a believer. And I just sort of, in the back of my mind, let a little yawn out and wave my fingers over my mouth. Oh, yeah, panther. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, oh. But, yeah, I am a seeing is believing. If somebody had come to me and said, I've seen a panther, I'd say, oh, yeah. And I, I just would just wash it off. So we were out, and we'd, uh, we'd, I think we'd got five foxes that evening. And it ended up quite a late evening, because we were still knocking foxes down late on. And we went round and took our scalp for the bounties. And we're on our way back down towards the farm buildings. Now, at this point, I'd decide, let's put a head torch on, just one. It's, they're, only, they're not strong lights, they're just just for where you can walk. Throw quite a wide beam. They're not a big pencil beam or anything like that. Some, like an $8 torch. Now, I'd taken all the rounds out of my gun, pulled my magazine, and I just glanced to my left. And all of a sudden, there's these big eyes. And in the beam I had, they seemed quite orange. And I thought, oh, fox. Then immediately I thought, gee, they were big eyes and spread apart. So I flicked the um, light straight off and I pulled my monocular up. It's gone off the track. So I said, hang on, Pete. So I've just nipped to my left then to look down round the corner of the building across that paddock to see what it was, because it would be running away. I would see it. I can't fail to see it with the gear I've got. Oh, that's strange. It's gone. Oh, never mind. It's two o'clock in the morning. Let's bugger off. So we've walked then across the front of that building um, and just when they got to the end of the building, just out of curiosity, I just looked to my left down the other side of the building. Whack, there it was. Saw two big eyes again. Couldn't believe it. It's there, you're joking. Turn the torch off straight away, put my head down, turn it off. And then we've got the monoculars up. And then we've got the shock of our life, then what we're looking at. It would have been about 20 to 25 meters in front of us. So this thing was big and bold in these this equipment we're looking at. And it was sat like a dog or a cat would sit looking at us. And then we go into a discussion like, what the hell is that? Because we can tell if it's a sheep or a ram or a goat or a koala bear or a panda or a giraffe. It's really easy to work out what it's not. Trying to make it into something that it wasn't. Well, maybe it's some dog on steroids. It's like the size of a Great Dane. But why is the head so big and round? And we're having this conversation. Well, we better not shoot it. It might be some exotic animal the farmer has. And it just sat there staring at us. It didn't move. So I'm looking at the muscle structure of the shoulders. They were huge. And the, the thickness of the long legs at the front. What the hell is that? Can't be a dog, but... We better not shoot it. We'd, we'd be in trouble if we shoot that. And because we hadn't seen it move, that was the biggest thing, trying to determine what it was. But if this thing stood up, it could put its legs over my shoulders and lick my face. That gives you a bit of an idea of the size of this animal. And we can judge distance with this equipment really well. This animal decided, 
I'm just going to leave. And it slowly got up. And then, I tell you what, my jocks were in a lot of danger, mate. I'm getting the back snapped out of them, I can tell you. It stood up and it gave us a full broadside, but it moved so methodically and slowly. Every footstep it took, the tail was, oh, it seemed to be at least the length of his body. The tail will haunt me. Thick, it never went to a point, it just went to a round end. It didn't wave around, it hardly moved. And then it started walking and immediately I realised through what I was looking at exactly what it was. Panther. Whether it was a jaguar or a leopard-type animal, I could not tell you exactly what it was, but it was a panther. And as soon as he started moving, I said, Pete, get your gun up! Get your gun up, for God's sake! Quick, quick, quick! Pete had to turn all the technology back on. If I'd have thought about it at the time, I could have put my gun up and just press record. But you don't think that. It's an afterthought. Then this thing walked and then it turned away from us and it was starting to walk straight down between two other buildings. It never kept looking back. It never moved, it picked up its speed. It just wandered down this track and then around the back of that building. Where, 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 said Pete. I said, just gone around the corner. Did you just see what, yeah, I did. That was a fucking, yeah, it was. Oh my God. But by the time he got his gun up, Turned the technology on, looked to target, it had just gone round the corner. That animal was watching, it was stalking or just curious and watching. And as soon as he got the flick of the torch, it nipped round the back of that building, came right round the back of the building and sat right where it sat because it knew we were going to walk past. If that animal would have wanted just to get away, it would have been running across the paddock. If that animal wanted to get away, it wouldn't even have been there on the track when we were there. They would have been long gone. We were talking, lights on, having a yak. Five foxes to me, Pete. How many do you get tonight? Ooh, that's a bad subject, Pete, isn't it? So we were having a yak. Feral cats are a real nuisance in Australia. A lot of um, a lot of hunters will tell you. If, if, if I could sit this animal next to a cat, you would go, ah, I see what you mean. There, that's chalk and cheese. That's um, David and Goliath. Peter shares with me what he remembers about the night out shooting with Bruce. We both knew exactly what it was when we saw it. We both turned to ourselves and we're like, mate, that is, that has got to be the panther. So I put the tripod up to put the rifle up to turn the infrared on because I've got the record mode on the infrared as well. And by the time I'd sort of put the the gun up and, and turned the night vision on, it, it was like it didn't even, it wasn't even phased that we were there. Because it didn't like run off, it didn't do anything, it just sort of strolled away. It just walked around the corner and we did not see it again. I've been back probably a couple more times after that and let's just say it's five steps forward and turn and always looking by, like now I'm very paranoid. I haven't seen anything like that again, but we were out there I think it was probably two times after that and we're roughly in the same paddock we heard this noise that like i grew up in the bush and i've never heard anything like this and what we could sort of describe it was something that was being almost mauled but it went from one end of the paddock to the other end of the paddock we could track the noise as it was moving across and we could hear it so clear as day but we couldn't see anything 
I grew up where there's koalas. I've heard different mating calls and um, distress calls and all that from different animals. But this, I've never heard anything like this before. What I put it down to is that this was a lot larger than a feral cat. And I do understand that feral cats can get quite large. I've seen ferals in, in the thermal before, and this was nothing yeah. like that. Bruce has been out there a couple more times. He's, he's, he's seen it again. I think he was out by himself. I think he shut his pants. <laughs> After the first sighting, Benny, I was on edge. I didn't want to go there. I wished I'd have never seen it. And I really mean that. Because now all of a sudden, I'm thinking, is it behind me? Is it in a tree? Is it the other side? Am I going to be walking up on it? Is it following me? Every cracked branch, every broken twig, you're on edge. You really are. I've never done as many 360 turns when I've been looking for something in front of me. I'm always looking behind me. Now, our first sighting was 2 o'clock in the morning. This particular time I was there would have been about 10 o'clock at night. And I've come up around this paddock. And it was an animal the size of the sheep just working its way through the tufty grass. Very purposefully, not rushing, just the same pace. And I'm thinking, well, that can't be a sheep. Where's its lamb? Why isn't it with the other sheep right at the other side of the paddock? So I think, oh, I'll have a look when I get closer because I've got a couple of paddocks to go through before I get to that paddock. So I'm looking at this animal and it's reached the bottom of the cypress trees. So I've got over the gate, I've come into the paddock and I'm walking up towards the animal on a 45 degree angle upwards. And I can see the animal moving up behind the cypress trees. It's about the size of a sheep, but I can't fully make out the animal because of the branches. Now, cypress trees, they're quite well spread apart, but the branches all touch. These cypress trees are just a row of cypress trees, big ones. I look at it at the bottom between the two trees, the branches come up and before they touch, I call it as an archway of opportunity. And I've shot foxes through these trees, just into the other paddock through these gaps. The wind's blowing straight in my face. I think, right, I'm almost opposite where the animal was. And I'm about 60 metres away. And I think, right, I'll set my gun up here on the tripod. I've got a tripod with a clamp, so I can put my gun straight into the clamp. And just as I'm about to take the gun off my shoulder, I'm still looking through my monocular. And then this animal came right into view into one of the archways of opportunity. Well, Benny, I am not joking. I really did at that point, I shit myself. Because all of a sudden, I could see this absolute animal. It was exactly the one, or the actual outline of what we saw three and a half months earlier. And I knew exactly what it was straight away. The tail, the slight dip in the tail, the length of the tail, the whole body, the head, it just walked right into view. And I just couldn't believe it. Now, three or four seconds earlier, I would have already had my gun up and I would have been looking at it through the skull. Click, record, off you go. Now, bear in mind this equipment we're using, we're not going out to record with spotters. We're not particularly going out to record with, with scopes. The feature's there. The reason it was being out there and the purpose of the equipment is to actually be able to use it in the dark and do away with these pest animals. That's the thing. The bonus is you can get some footage of it, which would have been great. So I'm looking at this animal and it stopped and it throws. And I'm just wide-eyed looking at it thinking, what the hell, my God. Now, I'm getting to shit myself here because I'm now on my own. I was with Peter the first time. We're all brave in company. All of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a paddock, 60 metres away from this animal, and it's now just stopped, completely frozen, looking straight ahead. And it was standing like that for oh, at least five seconds. 
And I've just got my jaw dropped, thinking, oh my God. And then the terrifying part of it, its head started to turn towards me. It was like a robot head. It turned and then stopped. It was staring straight at me. My God, it can see me. How can it see me in the dark like that? Now, I've done a bit of research since, and they do have really good night vision. This thing sensed me and stopped. Now, I'm in the dark, 60 meters downwind. It couldn't have smelt me, and it could not have heard me. I am stood still. There was none of my movement could have made it think, what's that? Now, at that point, when it stopped and looked at me, that was when, whoa, bugger this. I was straight off the shoulder with the gun, straight on the tripod, flick the cover open. The stuff's already on. All I've got to do is open the uh, lens cover, and I'm, I'm straight on it. And all I saw then was the animal just basically cantering into the paddock because it's a tufty grass paddock and it just went jogging into the paddock and then I lost it when I got to the top of that archway with the trees because obviously all the rest of the branches joined together. If it would have still been stood there, um, I'd have got the video, no problems at all. But that was the scariest one because I was on my own. I honestly wish I would have never, ever had these encounters while I am doing what I'm doing because now when I'm going to other farms, I'm still even on a little bit of edge. So it has taken a little bit of that supremacy when you're out there. Nothing can harm me. There's been times I've been going to this farm and I've turned around and gone home. Just the thought of that animal being there, I don't feel comfortable, I don't feel good. I'm going there on my own again. And I'll actually turn around and actually drive home. I won't actually get to the property, I'll go home. About an hour drive north of Melbourne sits a small country town by the name of Lancefield, which has also been at the centre of big cat stories for years. Patrick, a Lancefield local, contacted me with a story he had as a young fellow while shooting rabbits. Patrick's been a great help and resource for me over the months and got me up to speed with the history of Lancefield and the many interesting encounters in this area over the past few decades. This is Patrick's story. When I saw it um, in terms of time frame, was close to about 30 years ago. There was a time frame there around Lansfield where the panther had been reported to have been seen by a few different farmers. There was one guy initially who had claimed to have seen it. He was checking a sheep at night. He had seen it and uh, reported that it ran at his land cruiser ute. As it was uh, sort of running at the car, he, he fired a shot off through the car window and he was in such a rush he put a, a bullet through his rear vision mirror. For a number of years, they had these rear vision mirror hanging on the Lancefield pub wall. Growing up, I used to go and do work for people that owned Mount William Winery. It's like a, about a 15,000 acre or hectare flora and fauna forest that runs along a, a mountain range out there in, I think it's like Tantarabu. The son of the people that owned Mount William Winery and myself um, as kids used to go out rabbit shooting. So. The sheep farm we were on would have been somewhere between five and 10,000 acres, like pretty big farm. We used to walk like, you know, 20, 30k in a day around this property. On this particular day, we were sort of heading back to Mount William Rock Winery. Over in the distance, we could see rabbits sitting on the edge of some bracken. And uh, we, we were trying to just quietly walk across to this stump, thinking we could sit there and rest our 22 rifles on the stump to shoot at these rabbits in the distance. I, I estimated it being, you know, 30, 40 metres away from the log. In broad daylight, the panther had just 
run out from underneath this log. So it was the middle of summer, it was grass wouldn't have been more than an inch or two high. So it was clear view at a, a very close distance. And we watched this thing, you know, run a few hundred metres sort of off to where it was standing next to some bracken with some trees not far away. And it stopped, turned around and looked, looked at us. Und, under the log, when we walked over there, there was a full-grown sheep that had had its throat torn out. This cat was big enough to bring down a full-grown sheep by the throat, um, tear its throat out and drag it under a log. And I think it was probably sitting there just about, you know, getting ready to feast on this full-grown dead sheep. And it's about the only reason we got so close to it, because it was a bit distracted. And I, I used to own a Rottweiler that was probably, you know, 45, 50 kilos. I reckon the weight of this cat would have somewhere between, you know, 60 and 75 kilo cat. Like, I've seen heaps of feral cats in my life. This thing was, there's no way it was a feral cat. Really big, thick set body, sort of boxy shaped head. It was definitely black, but, and its tail was exceptionally long. Much longer than uh, any domestic cat I've ever seen in proportion to its body. But what, what you could distinctly see across this cat's body was shiny, round, black spots um, amidst, you know, the bits of its black coat that were a bit sun-bleached. So it sort of, it did present like a black leopard. Up until that particular day, I, I was absolutely sceptical of every story I'd heard, just thinking that people had, you know, seen a big feral cat and, and misinterpreted what it was or the sort of thing I, you know, genuinely appreciate that it would be very hard to accept without actually seeing it. Based on my knowledge of big cats, I assume it, it is or was. Looked at each other and, you know, just knew that that was a panther. There was no, no doubt about it. While searching through old newspaper articles, I kept noticing the same picture of what seemed to be a panther statue in the centre of town. When I looked into this a little further, it turns out that even the locals were left scratching their heads as to who made it and how such a large and heavy sculpture appeared in the town centre overnight. As I was conducting interviews with the Lansfield locals, coincidentally, someone happened to be good friends with the mystery artist and was able to put us in touch. Mike Jones shares the whole story of his panther sculpture as well as the crazy midnight mission to plonk it in the centre of town undetected. I bought a house in Lancewood while still living in the UK and my sister at the time was living in Melbourne and she sent over to England a newspaper cutting from The Age talking about the panther and the sightings of the panther. And this is just over 30 years ago. I was so intrigued by this that when I finally arrived in Lansfield, my first visit, I think, to the Lansfield Hotel, there was a pair of stubbies taped together with a piece of string to um, resemble a pair of binoculars. And they hung behind the bar, and this was a, something of a piss take of a local that, um, that had claimed to have seen the panther and he happened to be inebriated at the times, hence the beer of stubby binoculars. So that, that kind of tickled me a little. I thought, oh, we should commemorate it. And that's how I come to make the panther. When we installed it in the middle of the night, I had, it was already uh, mounted on a pre-cast concrete slab. So basically I made it up, up at home and then poured concrete into a big mould and set the panther in it so that when we delivered it, it was already kind of permanent, if you like. Now, at the same time, my wife and youngest son 
I produced a series of petitions. And on the night that we installed it, she and he uh, went up and down the high street putting these petitions under the shop doors, and, uh, which said something to the effect that um, Romsey has this poxy uh, sculpture by the skate park meant to emulate a um, derelict farm building with a tree growing through the roof. On the petition, I wrote something to the effect of, I took a photograph of that particular artwork and said something like, Romsey got this and it cost the ratepayers $30,000. Um, Lanceville's got a panther and it cost them nothing. Should it stay or should it go? And that stumped the council, of course, because overwhelmingly the local community said it must stay. Now, the council went to some great lengths to try and find out who made it, and I was keeping stum. Just because I, I had explored the idea of, of public artwork in the town in the past, but it became quite apparent that if I were to go down the appropriate channels, it would never happen. So I just, yeah, just took it upon myself to make it and sneak it in there in the middle of the night. Now, bear in mind that it's sitting on a concrete plinth, which was about 150 mil thick. I very quickly became aware that children were going to be climbing on this thing. And if one was to fall off and hit their head on the side of this concrete, it wouldn't be very good. So, um, Again, in the middle of the night with a bunch of locals, got a big forklift in there, we lifted it up, we excavated the ground and we reset it so that the concrete was flush with the surface. Whilst in the process of doing this, Romsey police turned up. They had been tipped off that somebody was trying to steal the panther. And when we explained what we were doing, they were very obliging. In fact, one of the policemen held a torch while we were excavating. And um, yeah, and that's, that's about the extent of it was my attempt at keeping this this tradition or this, this this folklore alive i didn't want it to die and I, I felt it was such a great story that it should be commemorated and be there for the public to enjoy it's been extremely rewarding from my perspective to see so many children climbing all over it and enjoying it um it's, it's delightful Jessie saw something out the front window of her car, not far from Lansfield, which is now ingrained in her memory forever. But this didn't end up being the only time she had an encounter. When I first saw it, I was just turned 18. I was driving the back road from Taradale to Metcalf, looking for my dogs. Got out and was calling for the dogs and they didn't come. So we got back in the car, started the car and this big, massive black cat ran straight in front of us across the road and it had massive legs and a huge tail like it was like probably a little bit bigger than a lion it was quite thin though it wasn't fat it was dark black so on the monday we rang the council and questioned maybe what it was the Castlemaine council put a call out and said look we've had numerous calls about it if you can kill it and bring it to us then we'll pay you for it. Apparently they'd pay you a thousand dollars if you could kill it and give it to them but <laughs> obviously no one's been able to do that yet. So of course all my friends went out looking for it but never found it. I went home and asked my mum what it was and she told me that there was you know the illusion of it but it's all made up. Yeah she didn't believe it either until she seen it. 
So I didn't see it or anything for years and years and years. And then about three years ago, I was visiting my mum. She lived in Taradale. Their house backed up onto the bush out in Drummond. And we were sitting around a fire in a circle. So there were three of us looking out onto the paddocks and then four people with their backs to the paddy. And at first we heard like a weird growling noise but put it down to being like maybe a possum or something. And then all of a sudden the kangaroo started running away from the bushland into the paddy. And this big black cat come running from out of the bush into a separate part of the bush. So like cut across. Three of us seen it. And by the time the others had turned around, it was gone. Well, a lot of people don't believe you. You tell so many people that you've seen it or, you know, heard it or, and they just kind of tell you that it's a wild cat. But this, it's, it is way too big to just be a feral cat. Greg shares something odd that happened to him on a property near Lansfield. I've got some goats on my property and uh, one of my goats died and it had a nice set of horns. So I decided that I'd like to cut the head off, put it up a tree, you know, let nature take its course so I could keep the skull. And so I took it out the back of our property. We're on 40 acres, of which 30 acres is pretty rough bush. And so I, I took it out the back and I strung it up a tree with some three millimetre fencing wire. So I you know, wrapped some wire around the horns, stood in the tray of my ute, put it as high as I could reach, you know, up into the tree, thinking, well, I'll come back in six months' time and, you know, all the flesh will be gone and I can sort of uh, have the skull. Anyway, probably about three months later, I went to try and uh, see how it was going and this the, this head was missing. And I thought, wow. And then I looked and I've got photos of these claw marks up the tree trunk where something has gone up, you know, about three metres, been strong enough to pull to make three millimetre fencing wire, like I'd actually twisted it on pretty hard. So something strong enough to pull that wire down and the head was gone. Now I, I subsequently, a few days later, found the skull, you know, with one of the horns missing and about a hundred metres away. And so I started to think, well, what's strong enough? It's got claws, because you can see the scratches in the bark up the tree. So it's something that's climbed the scale of the tree and been strong enough to grab onto this, uh, into this goat head and then be strong enough to unwrap this three mil wires. About seven years ago, we were staying at uh, a set of um, mud brick houses that uh, are available for rent. Uh, there was a four of us, two couples. We had dinner at the at the restaurant there, and we had to walk back to our house, which was, you know, I don't know, maybe seven or eight hundred metres, something like that, back up a hill up a dirt road. You know, about nine, nine thirty at night, so pretty dark. Didn't have any torches and whatever. And so the four of us were walking along, and there was a dam in front of our house. We sort of got. To, towards the dam and we saw you know what appeared to be a large cat drinking at the edge of the dam of, of the four of us three of us saw it clearly the fourth person didn't they were looking the other way or something but anyway we saw something that had a, a long tail uh, sort of curved upwards bigger than a dog or about the size of a large dog it was drinking at the edge of the dam looked up you know, we sort of startled it. It just sort of turned and disappeared off into the into the bush. We were pretty close to the edge of a forest, so it disappeared through the wire fence and up into the bush. And probably about 20 metres from it, maybe 15 metres, you know, when we saw it. And so we all sort of stood there and looked at each other and said, you know, wow, did you just see that? You know, what do you reckon that was? And we all concluded that it was, you know, something like a panther. Anyway, the next morning I came out to the dam to try and find some porkins. Couldn't find anything. You know, the, the ground was pretty hard around the edge of the dam. So I went down to talk to the property owner and I said, uh, I just, I saw something last night. I, I want to tell you about it. So I described, you know, what I've just described to you and what we saw looked like a panther. And then she said, yeah, that's exactly what I've seen. 
In 1861, an organisation called the Acclimatisation Society of Victoria was formed by volunteers. Their aim was to encourage the introduction of non-native species of plants and animals into the new colony. The hope was that these living organisms would adapt to their new home and enrich the area with familiar species. Some say it was also to make Australia feel a little bit more like England. Some of their most notorious projects were the introduction of sparrows, deer, hares, and the biggest claim to fame was the good old rabbit by one of its members named Thomas Austin. But a Victorian journalist by the name of John Higgins believes when Thomas Austin became bored of hunting rabbits, he upped the ante by introducing much larger species so that he and other wealthy members of the Acclimatisation Society could dabble in the world of big game hunting. I'll let John explain his story. The animals were released by an organisation called the uh, Victorian Acclimatisation Society. They, they were responsible for creating the Melbourne Zoo and they released four species, chittle deer, ostrich, African lion and puma. They were released at Wilson's property up near Horsham. Now, the deer are still present in the top end of the Grampians. The ostriches ran off and they're over in inland South Australia these days. Now, releasing lions is a fairly big issue. You know, the neighbouring landholders have immediately wiped them out. The same group, 10 years earlier, in 1859, released all sorts of other weird and wonderful things, the most notable of which is the rabbit. And if you look, look up who released rabbits into Australia, up will come the name of one Thomas Austin. They were pretty highly regarded in their time. The camels that uh, Burke and Wills used, they were quartered up at Wilson's property at Longrenong. So they were pretty well regarded during that time. It was really after the silly buggers let lions out that, uh, that people started to regard them as rank idiots. Whereas these days, everyone regards them as fools for releasing rabbits and foxes. The idea of releasing sparrows and um, rabbits and that was for hunting. It was also to make Australia more like England. No one understood the effect uh, all this would have on the environment. You take anything out of its natural habitat and you've got a potential problem, you know, like wallabies in New Zealand. You know, no one realised that deer would become such a pest in Australia. Now, we had deer in Australia for, for 150 years and they caused no problem. The last two or three decades, deer have become a massive problem. They're an environmental and agricultural problem. Back in those days, the releasing of rabbits and all of that sort of thing wasn't looked upon as being uh, so damaging because they hadn't created mayhem like they did later on. It was enormously damaging to Australia's wildlife. That wasn't the issue. The issue back then was releasing the, uh, the bigger animals, which could be uh, uh, dangerous to humans. But there were no rules. Effectively, you could do whatever you wanted to. It was straight out deliberate release of animals, and they decided to uh, release these animals for big game hunting. Now, the aftermath of all of this, not so much because he uh, released the pumas, but because the silly bugger released lions, he was packed off back to England by the colonial government. Austin did a deal with the colonial government where he didn't, they didn't extract a penalty from him, 
But when he died, they made a deal where he would donate money to a public service. Have you ever heard of Victoria's Austin Hospital? His uh, widow, Dame Elizabeth, gave the money to build the Austin Hospital in a deal done to make up for the all the weird bloody animals that uh, her husband had released. I couldn't find any evidence of this in my research, so I asked John how he could possibly know all of this. John told me that he worked closely with Thomas Austin's great-grandson, also named Thomas Austin, and that this was common knowledge passed down through the family grapevine. Thomas Austin's great-grandson later became uh, Minister for Agriculture in Victoria. He used to come and see me every second Friday. His office was in Mirraburra. My newspaper then was in Mirraburra. On a Friday, he'd wander down the street and then wander into the newspaper office and uh, just to find out what was happening. And then Austin then relayed to me that his great-grandfather was involved in the release. He told me that his family had been involved in it. They'd released them up at Longrenong. We spoke about it every time we met. He was just a very solid sort of guy. So, so when he starts talking about it, it was very interesting. They were wealthy landowners. They wanted big game hunting. Now, there was a sense of entitlement. Now, the release of rabbits wasn't to uh, give us some nice furry bunnies. It was to uh, create uh, hunting for uh, the people. Now, it's hard to accept that we have one species of uh, great cat running around. It's almost impossible to accept that we've got two Yet there is significant evidence that we might have too. Not far from where John Higgins claims pumas were released by the Acclimatisation Society, Tony believes he saw a big cat jump right out in front of his car. One Saturday morning, my father-in-law had a bush flock at a little place called Dadzel's Bridge, which is a 15-minute drive from Laharam, where we both farmed. In his 1976 green HJ Holden Ute, bench seat. Uh, father-in-law was driving. My brother-in-law, Dale, was in the middle, and I was uh, I was on the outside, on the left. And we're going down this road. It's now bitumen. Back then, it was a gravel road. And, and uh, the puma just came from my left. I said, look! Look at that! My father-in-law stood on the brakes, did about three bounds across the road. The second time, it just looked at us about a chain in front of the ute. I remember him thinking, that's as wide as the ute, or even wider, with his big tail. He looked at us with the big green eyes, and one or two more bounds, and he disappeared into the table drains, which were full of scrub. We backed back quite a few yards and my brother-in-law jumped out, laid the seat back on the ute and grabbed a 22 rifle, cocked it, and I'm saying, don't shoot it, Dale, don't shoot it. He went down the one table drain, I went down the, my side and we never saw it again. 1988, May 1988 it was, school holidays. Remember it clearly because after the sighting a few days later, we had two children by then, one 12 years old, my oldest daughter and my son 10. And it was school holidays, as I said, after the sighting. We went down to Melbourne and I went straight to the Puma or the Panther enclosure and there the big fella was sitting on a rock looking at us and I said, I've just seen your cousin. <laughs> it was good to be able to do that in the same week while uh, you know, memory was fresh. 
but it was just a true, honest sighting. The three of us saw it. We'll never forget it. Uh, brother-in-law, he's retired now, but uh, yeah, he can, ver- he can verify it. Dale was there in the car with Tony and briefly shares his version of the encounter. What it was, we were going along one day and um, it was actually a, a sandy sort of a track and there were three of us in the ute, I was sitting in the middle and maybe 60 metres up ahead of us, this thing just pounced across the road in front of us and we, we stopped the vehicle and um, I actually got a gun to shoot it but, but it was gone, we couldn't find it. Tom, we got out of the ute and that it was gone. So it was, was definitely a, a big cat, was a big animal, yeah. But it had, it had the movement of a pounce of definitely a big cat or maybe a puma. head office say there's no evidence big cats exist. How come we're not seeing concrete evidence, whether it's footprints, whether it's film? The anecdotal evidence is so strong. It's not evidence if it's just an anecdote. <laughs> come on. Let's do some profit news now, yeah, please. Let's. I handed over these um, these hairs marked in a little plastic bag, always sample, to a scientist who was embarking on the study of DNA analysis he rang me and uh, he sounded pretty excited. I remember the conversation saying, well, what have you got? And he said, well, <laughs> what I have got is a very solid match to a black leopard. If you're enjoying Missing Panther, please tell a friend about it and make sure you subscribe to keep updated on each episode. If you believe you've seen a panther or a big cat, or even if you believe you know how they got here, go to our website, missingpanther.com.au. Get us through the contact page. You can follow Missing Panther on Facebook and Instagram to come along this podcasting journey with us. If you get a spare moment, pop us a quick review on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to help support the show, go to our website, missingpanther.com.au. Hit the About button and scroll down to forward your much-appreciated donation. If you'd like to get in touch with Simon Townsend and John Turner from Big Cats Victoria, go to their website at www.bigcatsvic.com.au. And remember to check out Rick Minter's podcast, Big Cat Conversations. So far, Rick has 37 episodes of incredible big cat stories from the UK. That's Big Cat Conversations. Missing Panther is edited and narrated by me, Ben Bede. Music is by Warwick Party. Mastering by Paul Gomesall.